The following episode of Fofop is classified MA. It contains some coarse language, some nudity, drug references, a sex scene, time travel, terrible Batman impersonations, a Charlie Clausen pronounced Clausen shaped hole, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that the program is not suitable for persons under the age of 15, and minors must be accompanied by an adult guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax, this is Tofop. <laughs> Ironically, I'm not relaxed. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fofop, I'm Will Anderson. And uh, guest Charlie Clawson. Uh, back, uh, actually it's been a little while, it's been a little while since we've had a catch up, so this is good, I'm very excited to have him back. Uh, Graham, as we would say, but Graham, as uh, his people say. <laughs> you pronounce it in the American... Exactly, Graham, Graham Elwood is here. Take out the extra H in the A. <laughs> How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm yeah, good. thanks for coming. You've come, look, uh, and we won't linger on it, because, but you've come straight from a funeral. Right. Which is always a great way to warm up for a podcast. <laughs> Just, what are you doing post-funeral? I'm just doing a podcast. I literally was at the, like, you know, the reception at someone's house where there's food and everyone's talking. And I was like, I got to go do a, a podcast. But people are like, what? I'm like, eh, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up just because I want to mention, I, I doubt anyone knows who he is, but it was this guy, John Axelson, who was this classic TV producer. He hired me to host my first ever TV show, Strip Poker. Okay, now... Tell me what strip poker was. It's exactly what you think, Will. Well, that's why I want you to tell me about it. I was hoping it was exactly what I thought it was. It was... Uh, was it on television? Yes, it was. It was on USA Network late, uh-huh. late at night. Okay. This is, this is 15 years ago. It was on 99 You'd want to assume it was late at night. Yeah. You would, no, they just did some controversial breakfast programming. <laughs> Titties and biscuits in the morning. Yeah, it turns uh, out there wasn't an audience. There was an audience that wasn't served by Good Morning Australia. Yeah, it was... <laughs> There was a bunch of people that were in the testing rooms, you know, and they were just going, we're getting a lot of polling on, could I see Katie Couric's tits? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, people want to see more ass over their coffee. Right. Um, yeah, so it was, it was two guys versus two girls. Okay. Uh, I was the game, I was the host. We had a, a, a very attractive uh, co-host, uh-huh. Jennifer Cole. And, you know, you'd answer qu- questions, cards would come out, you'd try to build a poker hand. And every time you got something wrong, an article of clothing came off. Now, did they actually take... No. How this did is, this work? This is, let's, go, <laughs> let's go behind the scenes. I, I, I want you to be the master magician and tell people what really went on on strip poker. Strip poker. Uh, Exposed. Expose. <laughs> basic cable in the 2000s. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, they wore... Like the main complaint with the show is no one ever got really naked. Everyone was like, uh, I had so many guys like, how many bikinis can a girl wear? Right. Like, she's like a pasta parcel. Yeah. It was like, like three or four layers. Layers. And they'd, they'd be in like a bikini and the guys be like, oh, she's going to get naked now. Take it off. Slightly skip your bikini underneath. Right. Um, you know, and then you had, of course, two buffed out guys playing against them or whatever. And was there a romance element to it, or was it just stripped? It was just. What was the point? What was the? What were they meant to achieve? <laughs> <laughs> Morally or ethically, or why? Were, why were they doing it? Like, what was the purpose and point of this program? <laughs> 
It was a bunch of hilarious <laughs> questions and games uh, that made us laugh. But it was, yeah, it was, it was. Did you get to see attractive women barely closed? Was that part yes. of it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. You, you and did, did you hook up with any of the women who were on the show? Oh. <laughs> Yes. Yes, of it course. Was great. I mean, was, that's to me seems like the dude. I, like this is why you love this guy. <laughs> this is like, why you went to the funeral. <laughs> You're, like, <laughs> <laughs> You're crying in the corner. Everyone's like, "What's Graham so upset?" Uh, He's like, "I never got so much sex in my life. This man's responsible for it all." Oh yeah, there was. It was fun. I bet. I had a lot of fun. I bet you did. I was in my late twenties. I had. Already, you know, I had started as a comic in Chicago and did that for a couple of years and moved to LA. So I was just like kind of making my way up the ladder in LA. Uh-huh. Uh, but still had to take, like, I was working in a hotel on occasion with the guy Walker Ewell, who now does all the AV for the podcast festival. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, I worked for him. And so tell me, uh, what, what capacity in a hotel did you work? I did AV work for him. Oh, I, right. I set up you know, projectors and shit like that for people to have PowerPoint presentations. Well, this is very against the spirit of podcasting, someone who actually has some technical proficiency. <laughs> I was trying, I've, I've lost a bunch of episodes recently because I changed equipment and I've been oh. having some computer issues. And basically what I've realized about the podcast is that I have the bare level of competence to record and put out a podcast. So if nothing goes wrong with that process, I can put a podcast out. <laughs> but if something goes wrong along the way, I am fucked. I just have no extra areas of skill. I'm, yeah, I'm maybe a, a half or not, a half notch above that. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, and Walker will tell you when you see him, you ask him, and he's always like, God, Graham was an awful employee, but I kept him around because he was funny in the office. Okay, well, so, there you go. So there's, but, a, there's a tip to the kids. <laughs> if you are shit at your job, just, just be, funny. Be, be funny. Bring something to the table <laughs> is what we're saying. Don't just sit there like a mope. Just yeah. like, you know what? Turtle drove the cars around. Exactly. He was useful. <laughs> and they could make fun of him. Right. Um, so yeah, so I was doing that, and then and then John. I remember the day I, I had the audition. I had a sitcom audition. I think I had like an independent film, and then I was like, and some basic cable game show, whatever. Right. So I was t- I was studying Meisner at Playhouse West, which is where James Franco went. It's very deep, deep acting school, and I was preparing for these two, you know, the sitcom and the indie film. I would have fucking boom, bring my actor, and I was like, if we were making a like a, a, a like a film about your life, by the way, this is your big moment where you're choosing between like being a, a real artist or selling out and hosting a game show, <laughs> and you end up like being the host of strip poker and having well, sex with the contestants. <laughs> Put my head on the back yeah. of the chair. Put it, putting the poke back in poker. And it, it, it was. Well, the thing I always like to say, it wasn't like I had a choice. I didn't get the other gigs. Right. So, but I, the fun, going into that day, I was like doing all this work and preparing. And then I was like, the last audition of the day was for this cable game show strip poker. And I was like, whatever. And I go into this office and there's this guy, John Axelson, with a hat and a cigar. And then they had some girl and who was my co-host. And I just... They gave me some note cards, and I was like, yeah, whatever. And I just sort of riffed and was like, Graham L., what for strip? You know, and it's bang, bang, bang. And I made fun of everybody in the room because I did not give a shit. And, of course, that's the gig that yep. I get hired to do. <laughs> you know, and he was such a cool guy. He was one of the few people, and you'll, you'll get what I'm talking about, who knew how to talk in our language as comedians. Uh, wasn't a comedian. Okay. So explain to the audience what you mean by that. Well, like... 
you and I could have a conversation, and I and I guess now podcast audiences are becoming more savvy. I think that's why they're such great comedy audiences is because they hear all of us talking about that. But he would just talk about like, hey man, um, give a beat before you hit the punchline, and he just like he just knew how to say like this the technique and structure of what we do you know to the naked eye oh you're just up there talking and it's like no man there's like a thousand things firing and he just knew how to say like when the first season of strip poker we did 195 episodes oh because i was on five days a week right which um now i mean it was on five days a week because it was a compelling narrative yes yes (laughs) yes that's exactly it was you couldn't turn away from this character arcs that were happening every night at 11 o'clock um, so, but it basically, I imagine, and I mean with this, with the greatest respect, is like I imagine that show is exactly the same show every night, right? Of course, yeah. It's just me being sarcastic. It's funny pop culture questions, uh-huh. and I, you know the thing we were talking about today at the funeral with the one of the writers, Mike Rotman. They had we had funny. Kira Soltanovich was a writer. Bonnie McFarlane was a writer. Uh, Sarah Silverman came in one day to help write. And they were trying, John was like, look, I know this is a titty show. I get it. But let's try to make it as smart and as funny as we can. Right. And we got away with so much crap. It was, it was, it was such a, so much fun to do. And he was always like wanting to push the comedy envelope. And, and it was a fun set. Like the director and the camera guys ended up being the director and camera guys on the next game show I hosted called Cram. And they would always talk about, well, let's try to keep the set as fun as strip poker. I remember my manager came to the set one day and at lunch he goes, man, this is amazing. I go, what? He goes, I got 12 clients on TV shows. None of the sets are this fun. Right. We had a fucking blast, man. You know, somebody told me something really interesting about show business very early on and it was a good, great bit of advice and why I repeat it and have repeated it before. But uh, they said to me, remember, it's everybody's day at work. Right. And I was like... Oh, yeah, right. Because often when you go in to host a TV show or whatever, because so much of it, like the analogy I like to use is you're the pilot on the plane. Mm -hmm. The plane doesn't take off unless everybody's doing their job. But at the end of the day, it's up to you not to fly it into a fucking mountain, right? (laughs) Like, so there's a lot of pressure on that. You're the one who's eventually, you Mm -hmm. know, the buck stops with you. But you've got to remember that when someone, when the makeup person goes home, when the camera person goes home, when the writers go home, whatever, and their wife or husband or whatever says to them, how was your day at work? That was their day at work. Yeah. Like, it's not all about you. And I think if everyone's having fun, the show's always going to be a better show. Well, the thing I've always been so puzzled by is, you know, so many people in, in, in Hollywood, they get so like, I mean, I get it. There's a lot of money at stake and there's a lot of pressure, but it's like, we got it. And it's like, this should be a blast. I mean, that was his whole approach. Like, he was in the Coast Guard. He had a real tough childhood. He's like, you know, we could all be, I was literally, was working in a goddamn hotel and, and was moving furniture on occasion. And now you're telling me I get to wear loud bowling shirts and watch pretty girls take their clothes off and be sarcastic? Uh, yeah. Right. Like, it should be a blast. We've won the lottery, guys. Are you kidding me? We, like, ha- we haven't won the top prize, but we, we've, won, we won the lottery. We scratch off. Yeah. We've, <laughs> like, this is a good result. <laughs> I know. It was like, and this was in 99, 2000, so when those big flashy bowling shirts were in vogue. If you go on YouTube, you'll see it. If you type in Graham Elwood Strip Poker, you'll see it. Okay, so tell me about Cram. Cram was on... Or what I imagine we would have called in Australia, Crayham. (laughs) (laughs) WillAnderson.com, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, Crayham was uh, on the Game Show Network, and it was like you take two couples, 
and you'd make them stay up for 24 hours and uh-huh. give them all the stuff they were cramming for a test. Okay. I don't know if you guys use that terminology in Australia. Yeah, sure. You know, okay. So like a university or whatever, you cram for the test. So they stay up all night. So they come on the show. They have been awake for 24 some hours. <laughs> And we would make put them on these giant hamster wheels while they had to answer questions and they had to like later and it would always be like, last night you learned archery. So you have to answer these questions while shooting a bow. And they're like shooting a bow, trying to get good scores where I'm like, and in 1837, who's the first guy to invent? And they're like, uh, Johnny Archer or whatever the name was. I, that feels to me like somebody who saw what was going on at Guantanamo Bay and, and thought, <laughs> what if we put two couples in this? We sleep deprived them, we waterboard. <laughs> it works for the CIA. Right. It should work for cable TV. Yeah, we ask them a lot of trivia, and then yeah. every third question we go, and where's Saddam Hussein? <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. Um, yeah, so that's what that show. That show was a blast. Wow. Too. But we didn't have a studio audience. You uh, didn't? Did not. With oh, Graham. okay. So they, they piped it in. That was the only thing that was challenging. But the thing that was great about that, I learned so much because with strip poker, like we did six episodes a day. We never went over eight hours. Uh-huh. And so I learned how to work in television. Right. Like. Get it done. Get it done. Like uh, strip poker, we didn't have teleprompter. So I had to memorize my intros and they give me a set of cards and I'd have to look them down and the clock was ticking and I'd have to like read it over and memorize it and then okay. And uh, it was so cool to, to work like that, that quickly. We were, the show is, you know, it's 22 minutes and 30 seconds is what it needs to be cut down. We'd shoot them in 35 minutes, like almost live to tape. And it was, and everyone was cool and everyone worked hard and it was just such a blast. And I, to me, like, that's what show business should always be like. Uh, when did strip poker finish? I think it went off the air in 02 or 03. That must be due for a, like, they could go around again with a strip poker. And now these days, I mean, like with game, HBO should get strip poker yeah. and literally just let them strip. Oh, yeah, for sure. Do you know what I mean? Everyone kept saying that, like, God, this, if this was on HBO. Just put it on HBO. Yeah, it'd be awesome. And I was like, yeah, it would be. Um, it was funny. At the- what you need to do is write a satirical comedy, like, you know, base, that, you know it, which is around a guy who hosts... Like the strip poker show, right. but then you actually still use expert excerpts and they like can hire those girls who are in Game of Thrones to be like the strip. <laughs> I would love yeah. to pitch that show. Yeah. I mean, honestly, one of the writers was like, man, at the funeral day, he goes, man, three weeks ago, John and I were talking about crowdfunding to do strip poker because he got the rights back from the network. And I was like, oh, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Right. And then everyone gave these really cool speeches and talked about them and everything. And then, and then afterwards, at the sort of reception or wake or whatever you call it, he goes, you know, we should just do it. I was like, I'm in. I go, let's do it for John Axelson. Like, let's, I'm in. He's like, we'll just shoot it. We'll put it on YouTube. I go, I'm, I'm in. I don't care. It would be so much fun. I mean, what you should do, again, I don't know why I need people to be so naked in these things, but this is the direction I think it needs to go, is because it's what everyone always wanted. Right. You know? Right. This but, is what everyone always wanted. You should get, like, a sponsorship from, like, uh, Red Tube or, you know, because, like, one of those, like, porn networks, you know, they're sponsoring, like, rappers and stuff to do songs and shit now. That's Like, brilliant. you get a sponsorship from those guys and you play, like, uh, porn star strip poker. Dude, I'm, that's that's a. They pay for it. Yeah, and then that's a great idea because that's the one thing. Like when I started doing in 2004 is the first time I did a, a a comedy tour in Afghanistan, 
And all these young soldiers were like, oh, man, I used to watch that show. And why didn't they get naked all the way? And right. They barely, none of them remembered me. Because they weren't no. looking, they were looking at me at all. I mean, they were, they were not looking at you. No, they were not. And if you think about what they were doing when they were watching oh, know, that show, so you're glad that they weren't looking at I you. Know. You should be very glad that you weren't a victim of friendly fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wearing my Kevlar, so uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a good experience. So we're going to do that. I'm going to suggest that. We're going to. Yeah, it's a, make, it's a fun idea. I think people would be into that. I'm in, buddy. Uh, okay, so um, uh, we were going to talk about Mad Max. We were. Th- Ooh, that's yeah. what we said basically before we started. We're, let's talk about Mad Max now. So, look, we'll try not to do spoilers. I think we can talk enough about it without there being too many spoilers. Plus, sure. to be honest, and this is probably a spoiler in itself, but if you've seen the trailers, um, you get a sense of. Like, it's not like one of the, Like, you'll get a sense of. The movie did not surprise me. Having watched the trailers, right. that was the movie you expected having watched the trailers. Right, they didn't pull off and find a house and they have a nice conversation in a living right. room. It's all like cars driving you didn't, across the desert. You didn't watch the Mad Max trailers and then get to the movie and there is only that two and a half minutes of action and the rest of it's just like some indie mumblecore. Oh. Max just mumbling like, you know, this things about... Star Wars prequel, right. <laughs> ironing out the trade tariffs yeah. of the post-apocalyptic. Yeah, oh. it's seventy minutes of trade agreements, post-apocalyptic trade agreements. <laughs> Well, now we've turned to Article 48. You've just got all the various leaders from Gastown and Bullet Town oh. and whatever sitting at a table <laughs> doing but negotiations. Like mid-level leaders. Yeah, you know oh, yeah, not mean? even the leaders. Oh, just mid-level fucking bureaucrats. Oh, yeah, he sent out one of those idiot sons of his. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's the representative from Bullet Town. This guy's a fucking idiot. Oh. Okay, so um, Mad Max, uh, colon, Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Uh so if people want to listen to a, a spoiler episode of it, you guys did a comedy film yes. spoiler episode, which is excellent. Oh, good. Uh, I like very it. much enjoyed it. And uh, Kevin Avery, who was on that show, who's a writer for John Oliver. He's a very funny guy. Like last time he was on your show, that was the first time I'd heard of him. Again, mm-hmm. what I love about podcasting. Right. But that was the first time I'd ever heard of him when he did your show. And now I'm like such a big fan of his. Dude, he emailed me out of nowhere in like November and said, Graham, I'm a huge fan of your guy's show. I've been on Doug Loves Movies. I write for John Oliver. I'm going to be in, because John Oliver, they shoot in New York. Yep. He's like, I'm going to be in LA for a couple weeks. I'd love to be on Comedy Film Nerds. And I'm like, done. I didn't even know who this guy was. And then he's so smart. He's so funny. And, you know, it was great that all three of us, for the spoiler ups, it doesn't have to be this way, but it's great when all me, Chris, and whoever the guest is agree. Right. Because then we can kind of nerd out. Yeah, you can build on each other's, you know, you can go, what about this moment? And people have something to say about it. And it was so great. And the way we all, and like what Kevin brought in terms of how he broke down that movie and all of the intricate things that George Miller did, that film, I got to see it again. I just, I'll I'll give you a great example. A huge fan of ours, this girl Paige Branson, who wrote, she's a cartoon artist, did the Earbuds logo that's on the Earbuds Uh t-shirts, right? She's a huge Marvel fan, does an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, right? <laughs> Sent me a text today going, Graham, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but I liked Mad Max better than Age of Ultron. And she loved Age of Ultron. And that to me is like, this, like, I got to see it again. Well, it's one of those things, okay, well, there's, a, there's a few things about it that I, I want to talk about. Firstly, George Miller. 
like 70 years old 70 years old could you do that at our ages like could you do you know, i'm just trying to think how much work was involved for him to do that shooting out in australia and then they got to move production to south africa because there's too much rain and, and then i think tunisia or somewhere else like like what yeah. the fuck are those shoot days like i mean like honestly like my granddad you know, who would have been 70 about at the time right. when this happened, used to get upset, like, if he had to go down the beach because he'd get, like, sand in his, like, swimmers. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, and that would ruin the whole week if he got some sand in his budgie smugglers. But George Miller is happy to be out in the middle of a desert, like, filming all these things that at least one person must have at some stage gone, you know, we could just do all this on a computer. Right. Somebody said, can we just... Hey, you know when you did Happy Feet, those penguins couldn't actually dance and sing? We just did that with a computer. Remember, we, we didn't You go, could do all this with a computer. We didn't go to Antarctica for Happy Feet. I would love if it came out that that was also... Like, <laughs> there's not one bit of CGI in Happy Feet. All practical effects yeah. in Happy Feet. That's why he doesn't make a lot of movies. It took him 12 years to train those penguins. <laughs> Ten crew guys died of frostbite. It was, but he got it done. It was an entire... What he basically did is he took some semen from Hugh Jackman. He combined that and bred that with a whole bunch of penguins. And they came out like a dance and sing. It was a whole island of Dr. Moreau sort of thing. <laughs> With Hugh Jackman semen. <laughs> Hashtag Hugh Jackman semen. I think, I think on this episode for sure. Oh, well, it's got to be because his name is Hugh Jackman. I know. Come I on. mean, it's perfect. It's, he's the guy. And it would be the most delightful, charming. It would all come out singing and dancing. <laughs> like it, he would ejaculate like an opening number at the Oscars. <laughs> like. <laughs> There's no, as he's jerking off show business, the semen just land and start dancing in perfect choreograph. Yeah, yeah, behind him. That's, oh, oh it's a showstopper. God damn it. They, they have tuxedos on. His semen all has just perfect tuxedos. Is he just... Oh, God. Um, so, yes, he's 70 years old. Uh, he lives there right near where I live in Sydney. He's a neighbour of mine. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I see him uh, around the place occasionally. Mm -hmm. And I know him. I don't know him well, but I know him to say hello and have a chat. Right. And he is aware of who I am. So it's one of those chats where I can't remember us ever formally being introduced, but, you know, just that sort of, I know who you are and you know who I am, so apparently we can now talk like we know each other. So, um, but uh, people who regularly listen to this podcast have heard this before, but I think you will enjoy this story. Uh, so I'm in the butcher, which is not a place I go normally because I'm a vegetarian, so it's already an unusual circumstance. Mm -hmm. But I'm in our local butcher because uh, uh, I can't... Anyway, they do great organic vegetables and sure. stuff. It's like one of those sort of places, yeah. right? So I'm in there buying some really expensive potatoes or whatever. <laughs> and uh, George Miller's in there. And so we start having a chat and he, uh, he's asking me about what I'm doing and whatever. And I think I was over here at the time, like, you know, doing some work and whatever. And he said, oh, and are you writing at all? Because I used to write like a weekly column and had written a couple of books and stuff. And he said, you're still writing. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm not, like, other than for my own stuff, I'm not really doing a lot of writing, you know, I haven't done for a while. And he goes, I always loved your writing. He goes, uh, have you ever thought about writing uh, a movie? And in that moment, now I know that I've, I've, like, some, we've been talking along a path that's, like, taken one step, then two steps, and then suddenly my brain has taken 95 more steps. Sure. Because in my head, I am like, he's going to ask me to write the new Mad Max film. Like, that's... <laughs> I honestly went 
from like bumping him to him at the butchers to like in that moment going, oh my God, he's going to ask me. And then when he didn't, whenever he said whatever the normal next thing to say in that situation was, I was disappointed. <laughs> like I'd missed out. <laughs> didn't ask you to write the new Mad Max. But the interesting thing about this film, about writing, is that I, I was of the uh, understanding that they didn't really have like what you would call like a shooting script for the film. They had uh, storyboarded. He'd storyboarded the whole thing, okay. like you know, and so he had like the visuals and the kind of like the chases and the blah right. blah blah. But the actual dialogue and stuff, a lot of it was, you know, they would get to like you know to shoot that day, and they wouldn't necessarily have like a shooting script or you're going to say this here or that. And so I think. The one of the things that I was most impressed about this movie is because I'm much more a storytelling than a visual person yeah. traditionally. Uh -huh. Like I'm not one of those people who will ever rave about some movie that just looks great but is doesn't have right. a good story. It needs to have a story. Right. I'm, I'm much more the other way, right? But this movie, what I loved the most was that the storytelling through action was at a level that I have not seen in a movie for so long. There was a great story told in it, but you never once had anybody... Like, apart from the first, like, 30 seconds of the movie where it's basically previously on Mad Max, right? right? Like, <laughs> right? And then the rest of it, you never, you never get told, I am the king of this or I am this person or this is my story. No one ever has that sort of exposition sort of speech. But by the end of the movie you get a real sense of who those people were yes. and what they were from and that what that world was. And you get a complete sense of it by the end. It was one of the most amazing things. And we, we talked about this in the, in, the, in the Film Nerd spoiler app of like, I, was, I'm try, I still am trying to rack my brain of when a story has been told so efficiently in an action movie. Right. In a nonstop shot out of a fucking cannon action movie like and it was so much of what was told non-verbally right like just glances between tom hardy and Charlize theron uh Charlize theron and the the you know the virgin brides or whatever like all of their glances and how their relationship just had to develop at 80 miles an hour because they have a mutual enemy like that the action drove the storyline, it drove the character development, it drove the relationships and the arc of those relationships. The action did that. Like, I can't think of a movie. I mean, well, I'll give you a good contrast. I, do, are you still sticking with the Die Hard franchise? <laughs> <laughs> At this point, it's like, I, I guess it's, it's almost like, I, all right. I mean, I, I say them anyway. Like you have to. I At think, this point, it's like, like I think there's two and a half good movies out of the five. Like, sure. and that's enough. And I like the character enough. Yeah. And I have so much affection for the original one that I'm just like, oh well. I think two and a half is generous. But I, <laughs> but I see. I'm on the I'm on the same page with you. Of like, yeah, I'm gonna keep going. And each movie I'm gonna see, there's gonna be enough in it where I go, okay. Right. So the most recent one, the the Russian one. Sure. Uh, well, see, it's an Australian guy that plays his son, right? Jai Courtney. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has probably the most expensive-looking, longest chase and demolition scene at the start of it. Like the first, you know, essentially, apart from a bit of mm -hmm. setup, the first 20 or 25 minutes, I don't even know how long it is, but like a long time mm -hmm. in that movie is this just extended, mm -hmm. blowing up everything meant mm -hmm. to be spectacular, and it leaves you cold because it means nothing yeah. and it makes no sense. That's and, and here's probably how 
this is just a guess. I don't know how that set went down, obviously, but I could almost guarantee you that there probably was just a separate department handled that. Like right. there was an action director and he just got, okay, these are your guys. This is what I want to happen. And nothing in that told any ounce of story. You had a couple of quips of like, you know, I'm getting too old for this shit or whatever. You had a half a dozen of those sprinkled in there. And then maybe there was some. I, by the way, by the next one, they will just be doing catchphrases from other old movies. <laughs> don't you think? Like, that is what I. I mean, it's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm getting too old for this shit. I think you're Yippie Kaye, motherfucker, is yours, actually. Ah, oh, whatever. Shut up. Drive the truck. Yeah, I'm just a girl standing in front of a guy. What the fuck are you. <laughs> you're not even. You know how to whistle, Joe. Just put your lips together. And what? <laughs> just, what are you doing? Oh, God. That would be fucking hilarious to just make called catchphrase the movie and it's just one stupid action scene into another. Oh. I'm telling you, my goal, I've said this on Comedy Filmers, but I want to say it again because I want. this is how I'm going to copyright mm-hmm. it is by saying it on enough podcasts. Oh, yeah. No, that works. That's legal. <laughs> totally legal is... I think that actually means that one of those uh, copyright pirates owns all your ideas. <laughs> one of those patent trolls. Yeah. I want to make a movie that's a parody of the Fast and Furious movies and the Step Up movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I want to call it Step Up and Furious. Yep. And I want to have people dancing on cars and, you know, chasing a terrorist through a dance school car chase. Like, I, wanted, I just want to take all of the amazing aspects of that movie and make them into one. I like it. I like it a lot. I, I want to, I, I need, and I, I, look, I know this is too much for these sort of franchises, but I need a justification for the cars and the dancing to be in the one movie. So what's a plot line where like, you know, it would be pivotal. Sure, yeah, there's, like, a, there's a terrorist group that takes over the teen center. And uh, so they're going to, cause you always lose the teen center. You always got yeah, to get good point. to the teen center in the dance movie. So the teen center has been turned into some sort of like extremist or, sure. or like, Oh, you know, drugs or guns yeah, or yeah. bikies oh, or sure, whatever. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Bikey, ISIS, sure. gun druggers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All, right. All of them. Good. Yeah. And they're, so they can't dance there anymore. Uh-huh. And then there's, they got to take, uh, take it to the streets. Take it to the streets. Yeah. It's a car chase. It needs to determine. And right. they, the cars, you know, they break dance and car chase and gunfight. Uh, you know what? I could see that actually. I can actually see, like, you know, it's sort of some sort of late night drag racing event or whatever, Fast mm-hmm. and Furious style, that then, you know, there's a bit of a, like, a in the last, pop and lock battle as well. <laughs> well, in the last Step Up movie, uh-huh. they were in Miami in, in basically Fast and Furious cars. This yeah. is where I got the idea. And they stop and do uh, basically like a flash mob dancing on top of these racers and I'm like well let's just put those cars at 80 miles an hour and have them dance and then they dance on the on the plane right like in the Latin Fast and Furious 6 there was a plane that was on a 16 minute runway um, I timed it uh-huh. and I would just then add dancing and there's some sort of red wire blue wire thing and they save the thing and then they oh the guy goes guess what you kids get the teen center back and I'm a rich developer and you saved me from the ISIS bikers or whatever the fuck <laughs> you know what I'm saying like, like that's what the movie would be yeah I love those movies no 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 me too like I love a da- I love anything that has dancing in it like a dance movie like an old school dance movie as well. Like I grew up watching, uh, you know, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, right. those sort of things, Gene Kelly and, you know, those sort of movies that, that were your daytime. And those movies are entertaining as fuck. Oh God, they know how, they knew how to entertain you, those studio pictures. They're like, 
Because that was also back in the studio when you went to the studio and you learned how to dance, you learned how to fence, you learned how to sing, you learned how to ride horseback, you learned how to shoot a six gun. Like they were just like, right. you were trained to be a, in the pictures. Yeah. All, your- all the Hunger Games. <laughs> Either or. It'd be great if it came out that they were actually building a secret army oh. and they were just using the, 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 the pictures to cover it up. An underground Hunger Games army, yeah, that was run by Annette Funicello. Um, but yeah, no, I mean the amazing dance scenes in some of those things. Uh, like when you imagine, when you remember that they had to shoot these things at the time, right? Like not the way that we're shooting things these days, where you can like you know have mm-hmm. you know all these cameras and all these angles and yeah. things that spin around and you know you can check it all back. But you're like doing these major set piece dance things, which I assume they just had to get right. On film, <laughs> you didn't know if it worked until you developed right. the film. There was no playback. I mean, you're talking about... Uh, look, uh, here's the thing, Fred and Ginge. <laughs> um, I know that you guys spent three months learning that completely intricate dance scene, like going up and down steps and all that sort of thing. But it turns out Gary left the lens cap on. <laughs> Once we got to developing... <laughs> that kind of shit happened, though. Right. Like... I remember when I was in film school in college, I lost an entire movie I sent to the developer because I was going to school in Tucson, Arizona, and I had to send the film to this developer in, I think, either L.A. or Seattle or something. Right. And then got back a blank role and had to go to my professor and went, this was my like semester end project, and it's gone. And he was just like, welcome to filmmaking. Right. <laughs> And then he took a pebble from your hand yeah. and walked away. Yeah, he's like, and you've learned everything that I can teach yes. you. <laughs> that was it. That was everyone's film came back that. blank. That was the lesson. <laughs> he just he just backed away and then just disappeared into a mist. It was kind of a weird. He was a shape shifted into a deer and then he threw down something and a puff of smoke. Yeah, just, where did he go? Oh, he's. A- you actually heard him backing out of the room. It was weird. It wasn't. It wasn't as impressive as he thought it was. <laughs> Um, we'll get back to Mad Max in a second, but uh, while we were talking about big, stupid movies, um, <coughs> uh, Johnny Depp is in Australia at the moment. Uh, well, I don't think he is in Australia With at the his moment. Illegal dog. Yeah. Okay. Dogs. Uh, Boo Boo and Fuckhead. Bullet or Rocket or something. Oh, God, I, why? If I ever actually know <laughs> the names of those dogs, then I, then I need to die. If I, my brain, I program my brain to deliberately forget shit like that. Like, I just refuse to remember it, and I never will. And if anybody says the names, then I'm just going to say, you know, like when, you know what you used to do to your buddy when one buddy was trying to remember a phone number, and he would be talking to himself, he'd go, he'd hear the number, and he'd go, okay, 653-535, and just to be a dick, he'd go, 8475-9643, buttercup. That's what I do. When people are like, do you know the name of Johnny Depp's dogs? I'm just going to go, ah, bingo, tattoo, slapjack. And I'm so I never will remember. Oh, that's his kids. So, Who <laughs> <laughs> are also in Australia <laughs> illegally. Yeah, bingo, tattoo, and slapjack. Slap, what, was, what, was, what was the last one? <laughs> slapjack. Flap, slapjack. Flapjack. 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 Yeah. Well, they're twins. Flapjack and slapjack. <laughs> slap and flap. He's got four kids. He's got a great family. He's a great dad. He teaches them responsibility by disregarding international law. Well, here's the thing about Johnny Depp, right? Was 
a great actor. No doubt about that. Uh, made some great films and was very good in a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Made the first Pirates movie. Great. Loved it. Right. But here's the problem. This is where it all went wrong. Right there. Right that, right that moment. That moment. Because he went onto that set to make a, his first really big budget film. Like, you know, and he's gone in and he's done his half Hunter S. Thompson, half uh, Keith Richards right. impression. And it's made like $400 billion. And everyone's like, Johnny Depp, you are a genius. And Johnny Depp went, you know what? I think I probably am. Oh, yeah. And so from now on, I'm just going to be shit. It's the worst... Uh, it's the worst and biggest vat of Kool-Aid that has been drank is that Johnny Depp is this amazing comedian. And it keeps getting worse and worse. Like the Mordecai poster made me want to punch it. Have you seen uh, Tusk, the Kevin Smith film? No, I, I heard it was... I heard there's great stuff in it, but I also heard there's like stuff I probably... Okay, firstly, I like his podcast and I heard the podcast that this movie was based on, right? And it's great. The movie, I love that he makes them and, yeah, whatever. Fucking make your things yeah, yeah. and do what you want to do. Right. Like, well, you know, I, I'm supportive of all that. Sure. Oh, it's a terrible film. But, but there's some interesting stuff in it. There's some provoking stuff and some interesting stuff. But Johnny Depp, like, it's going fine. And then Johnny Depp comes into it playing one of his hilarious comedy characters. And it's, like, it becomes one of those things where Amy and I were just sitting there watching it going, what, what? Is this a dare? Like, is this has has like is Johnny Depp doing some experiment where he's like, how shit can I be without people saying that I'm shit? Right. Right. Like, I feel like that's the only. It must be some art project. If I, I, if it turns out he's doing some Joaquin Phoenix thing, you know what I mean? Like, if he was doing that, then I would fucking worship at his feet. Right. But that's we both know. Well. So anyway, so he's out in Australia filming Pirates of the Caribbean 19, oh. why not? And <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean go to college or Pirates go to spring break? Mission or... to Moscow. It's oh. Pirates of the Caribbean, Mission to Moscow. And... We're going to a country that hasn't been formed yet. <laughs> awesome. Communism hasn't even been invented yet in our time frame, but we're going there. I love it. So uh, he's been out in Australia and it's the first one they've filmed in Australia and it's a massive you know, movie for the Australian film industry. Because sure. I mean, it's a $300 million yeah, dollar movie or whatever. Work. Right, everyone. And so, but everyone that is except for Johnny Depp, who it turns out has not been turning up to set that often, right? Uh, so then he broke his hand mysteriously. He's been obviously having some relationship issues, it seems. And uh, he... Bingo and... Crispy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Flapjack and tattoo. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, but I love it with your Australian accent. It's tattoo. 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 Fucking awesome. Flapjack and tattoo. <laughs> Fucking great. Really in Australia, we'd say tat. Anyway, we'd <laughs> That's like, right. You would shorten yeah. it. Tatty or something. Yeah. So, um, uh, Flapjack and bingo. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, he. Um, so basically, he it hasn't been rocking up the set on the movie. That's been one of the things he hasn't been doing. He's hurt his hand, and uh, he's flo- he hurt his hand from phoning it in. Right. How he hurt his hand. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's trying so little. He's texting it in. He's texting. He's he, literally, Siri is doing his part. Right. Siri reads these lines <laughs> while he, him and Bongo and Tattoo are fucking. <laughs> 
whatever the fuck they're doing, macrame for the new Mordecai script. Siri's got this. I'm going to be in my trailer oh, with Jesus. Bongo and Bingo. Oh. All right. So he brought two dogs out to Australia, smuggled his dogs out to Australia mm-hmm. on his private jet. And um, yeah, this is like every reason. This is like. I don't know why people would hate rich Americans. I just don't understand why the world would hate our country when this entitled asshole, and it also shows to the the world, hey, guess what? America has lost its shit when it's come to dogs. Dog owners have now become (coughs) what smokers were 25 years ago. When people could smoke anywhere in America, restaurants or whatever, and, 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 and you just be like, hey man, could you turn that, what? Well. And no one thought, hey, it's fucked up that a guy is smoking on a tube in an airplane or there's 10 people smoking while I'm consuming food. And now these dog owners, and the minute I say this, dog owners go, oh, Graham must hate dogs. No, vegetarian, mom lives on a farm, owns a dog, great dog, had a border collie in high in uh, high college which was awesome border collies are amazing I know this is not what you're doing but by the way this is the classic thing that someone's who's about to end their sentence in I'm not a racist I'm not a homophobe but look hey those queers my, are dirty. My mum has a gay friend <laughs> yeah, no, on the farm. <laughs> and, when, and when I was in high school, there was a guy that I think, and I was nice to him. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he was cool. But and, here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. <laughs> we should beat him up for being different. Yeah. No, no, but... Why do you hate dogs? I, <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Graham hates dogs. Um... What has happened in America, people are now buying... We can remake uh, Must Love Dogs, but with you, Must Hate Dogs. <laughs> it's like a, it's a romantic comedy about a man just looking for another person who hates dogs as much as him. Here's the thing. People are now buying fake service animal uh-huh. vests and taking them on planes. Yes. And that is ridiculous. Not allowed to do that. You know, and no. they're just letting their dogs go anywhere and they just assume everyone loves dogs. I'm at my yoga studio and all these women bring their dogs. I'm in the middle of yoga class and all these dogs are outside barking. And I'm like, is this a kennel? Like when I was a kid, you had dogs. Great. The dogs played outside, you know, and you didn't, no one brought their dog everywhere. And this, this sense of entitlement of like, like in, in Santa Monica, there's all these farmer's markets. And at these farmer's markets, as is the case with many of them, there are stands where they cook food. Yep. So people bringing their dogs in and they started having to put signs up going, you can't bring your dogs into the farmer's market because it's a health code issue. And people just like, fuck that. And they'd get these fake service animal things. So then the city of Santa Monica, <laughs> God love them, put up like uh, service dog fraud is a crime and started <laughs> writing tickets up because it's like the blind guy who has the actual service dog, you're just fucking spitting in his face. Right. Here's what I think. Basically, firstly, you probably could spit in his face because he's blind and he yeah, wouldn't say coming. Do? Take a swing at me, old yeah. man. What are you going to do? <laughs> My mom knew a blind guy. I loved him. Yeah. <laughs> Push over. Hey, I love Daredevil. I can't be anti-blind people. <laughs> I love Daredevil. No, I think that you should be able to... Um, uh, if you want to have a service animal that you legitimately should have to have the service. So And the paperwork. Like, you know right. what it... Dogs... So, uh, here's what I'm saying. training and get rejected. If you want to get your dog onto a plane and, you know, you need to be blind and you're not blind, then how much do you love your dog? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. 
You've got a choice to make. And I'm not against eyes. I mean, I have two right. of my own. Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying. We'll let you have. We'll let you have one. You can lose one. Bring a patch. We'll, right. And, and all the ADA paperwork, <laughs> and you can get on. But yeah, this I, I do. Know. There's just such a sense of entitlement, especially even LA with the dog, and no one ever. Like I had someone with a fake service animal, and their dog took a shit on the floor next to me on a plane, and I'm eating, and I'm like, come on. And someone's like, well, I need it because I'm... Well, Jackie Cation has a pet iguana. Does she get to bring her fucking iguana on the plane? Because Jackie doesn't get scared when she flies. That's like, I'm tired of that. Like, I don't care if this inconveniences everyone else. Uh, What about this? They should have an airline that only flies with animals because people then would be fine, right? Great. It's like Noah's Ark of the Sky. (laughs) Dude, dude, you would make a trillion dollars. Right. And some people would just like to fly on it because they like animals. Sure. So if you know it's the the animal airline. Great. Yeah. Set that airline up. Air, air animal, air animal, (laughs) air animal. And the, and the, the animated character, the pilots are Bingo and Flapjack, and they fucking <laughs> wave at you. And yeah, look, we couldn't get Johnny Depp to do the ad, but but we got we got Bingo and Flapjack. So, <laughs> or it might be Slapjack, it might be Bongo and Slapjack, or Bingo and Flapjack. It's it's definitely we got them all committed, right? Who we should we've got pencils, we've got pencils on them all. We haven't got tattoo yet. But <laughs> Tattoo's hard to get. Tattoo's hard to get. Let's just, let's not keep So, it. I don't know if you saw this, but it was on okay. the John Oliver show, and it's always lovely when you're overseas and you get a little uh, taste of home, I guess that's what I would say. Right. And so, um, I'm there, sitting there watching the John Oliver show, and he's like, now to Australia. And like, I already suspected what this was going to be. But then he like shows, like, you know, our agriculture minister in Australia, because what he did, because it, for people, particularly for our American European listeners, you might not understand sure. this. But basically, if I wanted to bring my dog to America, I could just bring my dog to America. Right. Uh, but if I wanted to take that dog then back to Australia, it would take nearly six months of quarantine because of the strict, you know, because we don't have different diseases and stuff You're in an Australia. Nation. Yeah. And we just thought we might try to keep some of those diseases out. Go back to where you came from, diseases. <laughs> Look, don't get me wrong. My mum had some diseases on when... The farm. She, she I mean, disease on the farm. <laughs> See, I had a very sickly friend when yeah, I was growing up. I him, we all loved him. We had a them. friend with polio. Yeah. I, polio Pete, we called him. His name was Gary, but that didn't rhyme. So Polio Pete, we'd always reenact FDR speeches. It right. was a blast. <laughs> He didn't understand the reference because he was an Australian. (laughs) But after a while, he was like, I guess FDR must have had polio, right? (laughs) The reference only Americans would get, why are we playing this game in Australia? Didn't matter. It was fun. It was fun. It was good times. So so basically, Johnny Depp wasn't allowed to fly his dogs out. He shouldn't have done that, right? So our agriculture minister said, "Um, you're going to have to send your dogs back to America, Johnny Depp, or... We are going to kill your dogs. Yeah. Now, it uh, turns out that when you go on television and tell the world's biggest star that you're going to kill his dogs, that makes the news. Like, you know what I mean? Like, now, here's the thing that we know in Australia this guy, Barnaby Joyce, like, Barnaby Bananas is his nickname. Like, he's this country member and he, like, says ridiculous, like, he's, he's a cliche. He's like basically, you know, that episode of The Simpsons when they went to Australia? Yeah. yeah. Like, he's like if one of those guys came to life. Like, I watched that and went, this is not like Australia, except if it's Barnaby Joyce. This is exactly <laughs> like Australia, right? <laughs> 
Take so, your dogs out, mate. Is he like that? Right, that's right. exactly. So he's gone on the, you know, it doesn't matter if you've been twice voted the world's sexiest actor because, of course, he's this is his showbiz moment. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, this is so his, Barnaby's like... going to like... Like, Barnaby's like, this is a big day for Barnaby. Like, <laughs> I am going to threaten to kill Johnny Depp's dogs. I don't know what the rest of you are doing, but when I was a little kid dreaming of going into politics, I never thought there would be a day as exciting as getting to threaten to kill the beloved puppies... Bongo and Flapjack of <laughs> one of the world's greatest actors. So Famous, not greatest. But also, here's the other thing, is that like he did mention Barnaby in the speech that he'd been fighting. Didn't mention the fact that like, you know, he's the, you know, the big actor or whatever. He only mentioned that he'd won the world's sexiest man twice. And so if, Barnaby's a little pissed. Barn- and if you look at Barnaby's head, like you can tell Barnaby grew up hating Johnny Depp. Like this is his moment. This is like he's. This is his eight mile. He can hear the Eminem playing in his ears of like, thank fuck, finally. Like I've got all into- of the girls he lost to good looking guys. Well, they say that politics is show business for ugly people, right? And th- this is his moment where he's like, fuck you, Johnny Depp. I'm gonna kill yeah. your dogs, right? So th- we didn't kill his dogs, thank God, because I don't think our country would have ever recovered from that that would be well, one of those how do you get any celebrities to come to australia if ever. you've killed johnny depp's dogs ever it would be a crazy it's crazy right it was crazy thing but this is what crazy behavior brings it brings out the barnabies of the world oh well, i mean don't get me wrong johnny depp did the completely wrong thing yeah he's wrong he was at fault we probably could have just said take your dogs back to america <laughs> We probably didn't need to be like. Didn't have to put a knife to their throat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. he was on the news with with Bobo. <laughs> he had the knife to bullets throat. Bilbo was holding a uh, <laughs> a newspaper, and there was like, "Get the dog out of here!" Or he gets it. Like, Hundred grand in an unmarked gym bag, or or Bilbo's dog. Bark twice if you've been treated well, Bilbo. <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> I don't have to be voted sexiest guy in the world to know. Like, he bring, does Barnaby bring that into every speech? <laughs> you know, when I was voted, I was voted to serve the people of Australia. I didn't have to be the sexiest guy in the goddamn planet. Like, he's just never is going to ever let that fucking go. Like, Barnaby's just always going to grind on that. So what I'm saying is, you and Barnaby might have a lot in common with your hatred of dogs. I want to be the Barnaby of the world. No, I. And you need to travel with Barnaby. Oh, I'm, he wouldn't be putting up with that shit on the plane. Oh, oh, if that dog had shit next to Barnaby on the plane, dog would have been dead. He would have nailed it to the wall. Dog would have. <laughs> Barnaby would have turned into Liam Neeson in that movie where he was the airplane. You know, the one on the plane. Yeah, taken plane. Taken plane. <laughs> plane taken. Plane taken. <laughs> Whatever that one was. It was great. It was, By it, the way, they should never stop making those movies. I, I know that the, the last one wasn't even that good. You know what you... Who cares? I, lo- I just love to see him killing people and being vengeance and whatever. Being vengeance. That's it. You just summed it up. Liam Neeson is vengeance. He's vengeance. I'm vengeance. Right. Did you see that ad? That, that's actually should be... That's Just skip all this other shit, mate. Yeah. You're vengeance. You're Liam Neeson is vengeance. vengeance. Like, just boom. Yeah, I would say, like I, you, I don't, you probably didn't watch this, but there was a, a big, you know, the Super Bowl in America. They do these big ads, and Liam Neeson was in this Super Bowl commercial. Which one was it? 
he's on the phone talking to someone and he's doing like a basically like a taken right. speech. Like, yeah. I will hunt you down. I will find you. I will use all of my skills or whatever. And I don't know. I was doing Sean Connery. I don't right. know what the fuck I was doing. But um, so then they pan back and he's talking to some kid. He's playing a video game. And he's just like taunting a kid about they're playing some live stream video game. And then, and then you, they pull back even further and he's at a coffee shop in like LA and they're like double half calf, you know, decaf soy milk for, and then they, I forget the name, but it was like, you know, Valkyrie or some like tough guy Thor or something like that. And he's like, Oh, say thanks. And he's all nice. Liam Neeson in a coffee shop in Hollywood or whatever. It's fucking brilliant. He's brilliant. I just think that like, I will watch, He's that one. Like, he fills that niche of, like, you're on a plane or in your hotel room or whatever, and you're like, what's this one? Liam Neeson punches a wolf in the face. No, don't All right, me. I'm in. Wolf fight on ice? <laughs> Do it. Book it. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Liam Neeson's angry at a wolf? Sure. Oh, yeah, that yeah. wolf is probably talking shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sign him up for some vengeance. He's the, he's the new, I, I figured it out. He's my new Gene Hackman. Oh, yeah, okay. In the 80s and 90s, Gene Hackman did a thousand films. And yep. every fourth one was really great. Right. But I didn't care because it was Gene Hackman. He used to be a Marine. Let him go around and just punch people. Like, right. I, I don't give a shit. And that's what I want to see Liam Neeson do. Just in a leather jacket, knocking guys out. That's all he should be doing. In a dark, dirty alleyway with a pool cue, like some weapon of opportunity, you know, just a shoehorn in a guy's throat while the wolf... I don't care. Just fucking go, man. Like, right. I want to see him in that cave in the opening scene in Mad Max where Max had to fight his way out, which, by the way, was some amazing fight choreography. It was dirty and sloppy. The only thing that would have made that better is he just like, Liam Neeson's in a cage, and he goes, all right, mate, and fucking cuts him loose, and they just, the two of them just go fucking start knocking out those white dudes. Like, wouldn't that just be awesome? Like, <laughs> right? Just fucking go. Like... I mean, I would love to see that. Like, I think that they should go back and remake all these old films with that new, the you know, the cliched Liam Neeson character now. Because yes. don't tell me Schindler's List wouldn't be a better film if it was. <laughs> I will find you, Goebbels, and I will hunt you down. <laughs> yeah, Schindler kills Hitler. Right? That's the ultimate sort oh. of right. Do it. Yeah, okay. I would do that. Right, well, that's an idea. That's podcasted. <laughs> Podcast it. All right, um, Mad Max, let's talk, uh, we'll talk a couple more things about that before we go. Um, what other things did, were, were you particularly, you know, liked or disliked or oh, whatever man. about it? There's very little I disliked. Um, the more I think about it, like... You know, first we talked about it on the regular Comedy Film Nerds episode, and then we did the spoiler rep with Kevin Avery. By the end of that spoiler rep conversation, there was more stuff I had remembered that Chris and Kevin were like, oh, yeah, right, right, right. I've been getting a slew of tweets and Facebook messages and emails from fans saying, what about this? Did you see that? And I'm just like, it's making this George Miller's masterpiece even more to me, to where... I need to see it again. Like, there's so many things I'm sure I missed that I will see. I, this is my guess is this is going to be one of those movies that ten years from now you're going to watch it on cable. You're going to be flipping through the channels and watch 35 minutes of it and see something you've never saw. Yeah, and I think that it is one of those ones that 
will be enjoyable on the big screen, but will also be enjoyable to take your time with. And like you said, have that sort of opportunity to kind of linger with it or whatever and watch, you know, not even having to watch the whole thing mm-hmm. at the same time afterwards. Because I'm not sure that, like, I'm going to try to see it one more time at the cinema. Because I saw it uh, at the the Chinese, the man Chinese on the 3D, the new IMAX. 3D IMAX thing. And they've got those new 3D glasses with the mirrors and it's... it's it's kind of incredible. It's, I saw Interstellar there. And this is the first time I had seen a movie since they remodeled the Chinese. And Interstellar, I thought, was... was, it was and I, and I've, if you've ever listened to comedy film nerds, you've heard me say I don't like 3D. <laughs> you know? Right. And I'm really... This new version of it, and I saw Age of Ultron in 3D, which was pretty amazing. And Mad Max, I was like, eh, I wasn't sold on it by the trailer. So I saw it in 2D. It was, blew me away. Now I think I need to go back and see it in 3D. Because I just feel like... I think you've seen it the right way, though. Because I think that's the right way to see it. See it first on the... And I don't know, because I haven't seen it like on the regular screen mm-hmm. yet. But the only thing that I would say about seeing it in 3D... And the 3D is amazing on mm-hmm. this film. And particularly in that one, like it was the best 3D experience I've ever had like right. at the movies. But it made... Because I know that it's all pre- pretty much practical effects. Like There's barely any CGI in the entire film. Because of the... 3D and whatever, I think it felt like sometimes there was a bit more CGI in it than that you know there is, you know, because of the effect of that. Whereas, like, I think seeing it, like, you know, on the flat screen, I'll just get more of an appreciation of, like, the fact that it is all kind of practical effects and this whole thing is kind of happening. You're just watching it happen, you know. <coughs> that, to me, is one of the great things about this film is the spectacle of it. It's almost like those old movies that we talked about, like the old action movies where, you know, uh, they had to have 10,000 extras to do this battle scene or whatever the movie, like in the movie Patton, let's say, for example, with George C. E. Scott. They need- about Patton Oswald. Yeah, about right? Patton Oswald. Yeah. yeah, he was fighting in Africa or something like right. that. Taped a special there. Yeah. Uh, it's a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, he made some snarky references. About yeah, ah, oh, man, that whole battle scene with uh, Salon. <laughs> it was a real highlight of the film, I thought. <sighs> we talked about playing D&D. That was amazing. Rommel, I read your book. Um, <laughs> they, you watch those scenes and you go, holy shit, that was amazing. So then to now come back to now today... And all of that shit, those guys on the pogo sticks, and you knew these were real explosions. And I'm sure there was a couple I noticed that might have been a CG body flying because right. you just can't kill someone. Or, no, you can't. Well, maybe in Tunisia you can. Yeah, who gives a shit? I don't know. Um, uh, you know this, this is how much jo- this is George's final project. He's yeah. like, look, can we kill someone on this one? Yeah, and you he- wouldn't let me kill anyone on Happy Feet. <laughs> Wouldn't let me kill anyone on Babe Pig in the City. And they said no. And he goes, you know who I'm hiring to be my uh, my line producer? Barnaby right. from Australia. <laughs> um, so that was the thing I was watching, and I was paying close attention. I was like, maybe that was probably maybe a stunt dummy, maybe. But for the most part, I was like, God, this is amazing. Like, and how long did this, like? Knowing how complicated this was to shoot, knowing like, and and that they're getting these actors talking while the the truck is going fast. They're not; it's not green screen behind them, 
And that also helped, I think, probably, I'm sure the actors would agree with this. I'd love to hear what they say, actually. I'm sure that... Oh, they're on the podcast next week. Oh, good, so, great, yeah. great. Is Tom Hardy outside? <laughs> um, is he coming to PodFest? <laughs> uh, but, like, that, you could tell, motivated them in those scenes because they were acting in a scene while they're on a truck going fucking 50, 60 miles an hour right. or whatever. Like, it was just amazing to me. I can't even... Uh... One of, so there's these five virgin brides, mm-hmm. but uh, well, not virgin brides, well, well, yeah. uh, but you know, uh, who They're have been raised pampered, pampered, and they've been raised obviously you know, to be the wives of this like evil guy, right? Sure. And they're escaping, and. It was also one of those things where even like those scenes, and I remember you guys talking about it on yours, there's a scene where they're just out in the desert like splashing each other with water. And look, I can understand why people are like, hang on, isn't water a scarce resource in this? Like, But I just think his vision for how things look and this world he's creating, it just, to me, I just loved all that stuff. I didn't find any of that like, I mean, look, here's the thing. I... I'm very much hashtag yes all women and I understand that as a man we need to make a space for women in our society and equality and I understand that the thing that I'm about to say is not respecting this person as an actor oh, and go. I should this respect like my them mom's dog. only as an actor. But I mean, I think the bravest and most rewarding choice that George Miller made in that film was not letting um, uh, Zoe Kravitz wear a bra <laughs> because... <laughs> I mean, why that movie was so amazing to me and why he was able to get away with it. In any other film, you were like, oh, this is just an egregious wet right. t-shirt titty scene. And for that split second that I was like, why are they wasting water? It's still, I, I, I went, all right, they've been pampered. They're going to just do that. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. Charlize Theron is just going to go, whatever. I got to pamper these girls and get them to the green zone so we're all safe. So wh- whatever. Let them fucking have their hose down. We got to get the fuck out of here. Everything moved so quickly and everything made so much sense that when I had those quick little nitpicky things, I'd go, mm, yeah, anyway, it's great. Right. It's a, Here's the thing. It all kind of served the character right. and the movie. If it didn't necessarily check out like, oh, would that have really happened? It wasn't that sort of movie. It was like, is right. this something these characters would do? Does it make sense in this kind yep. of like frantic? Because the other thing is, and this is one of the more interesting things about the movie, is you talk about Max, but it's not really Max's movie. It's Charlize, Charlize, Charlize Theron's movie. Yeah. And her character is the driving force of the movie. For the first half of the movie, which I think is one of the most excellent things, is Max... He's strapped to the front of a car. And he's very neutral. Like, he's not on anyone's side. Yeah. And there's a moment, like, halfway through the film, and this is just why I think he did a great job with this film, where in any other film there would have been that moment where he's like, I'm with you guys now. Today we are all Mad Max. God damn it. You don't want to make me mad. You're not going to like me when I'm mad. Oh, and caught Johnny Depp. We're going to do that again. But, you know, that would have been that movie. Right. That, that moment in the movie. But instead, what you just see is a moment where you go, well, it makes sense for him now. He's chosen. He's with these guys. And the best approach is for him to help them the best they can to achieve what they want to do because that's also going to be helpful to what he needs to do mm-hmm. you know, himself. And then as soon as that's done, he moves on. Because this wasn't like this big life-changing, you know, this was just, this is like the world he lives in. Yeah. I get strapped. I got to get out. I'm surviving. I'll, you know, I'll help who I got to help. And the other thing going back to the whole, you know, 
egregious wet t-shirt contest that they had in the middle of that rave at the middle of you know burning man or whatever it was very burning man but again the whole movie had that like sense of it's kind of like and that's what i liked about it as well it it's not a bleak post-apocalyptic future like the world is fucked up but instead it's painted in this like everyone's just gone sort of burning man right and that's why the people painting their faces and like you know when they spray the silver on their faces because the yeah, and because I think they're trying to emulate. Well, again, this is the, what I love about this movie: is it gives you enough stuff that if you want to put it together, you can. But my impression of that was because their leader, who they all seem to be wanting to look like, right, um, had that metal thing over his face. Like when they were about to die, they would like spray the silver so that they looked like him before they went to like Valhalla or whatever, right? Isn't and that, awesome? and I think that's what it, I mean. To me, that's what it was. They were doing, it's but maybe so it wasn't because they never say, "This is why we sprayed the silver on our faces before." We but no that to me that's the second or third theory on that that i've heard and they're all different and they're all great right and that to me is what makes a great movie he gives you just enough so you're not going what the fuck right he's just slapping bullshit together it's just enough you go oh that makes sense that they would have some weird ritual that came out of 20 years of apocalypse fucking cannibalism and this is their new god, their new religion, whatever the fuck it right. is. Right. It kind of felt like there's a guy post-apocalypse who's pieced together what he knows about, you know, old religions and old blah, blah, blah to, you know, like religion has done all over the years yep. to control a lot of people in one of those, you know, desperate circumstances. Right. And, and so... And, and they're, they're, you know, one, one fan uh, theorized that, you know, they worship the machines at this, in this new world, right? The cars are the ruler, you know, the guns and the, the bullet town and oilville or whatever are there to serve the machines, which is where you have the power because you can transport. And so they're like, I'm going to die. I'm going to spray myself to like, we worship machines now. So that's why I'm spraying silver paint on my face. But what you said makes perfect sense too. I like that they all had different cars. Like all the right. tribes have different cars and a different way of looking. And that is of interest to me because... I've been reading a lot in, uh, lately about, you know, different people's opinions and why people have opinions and how you can, like... Because uh, I'm fascinated by the way that our debate happens in our society at the moment where people just yell at each other yeah. and nothing ever gets achieved. And so I've been reading a lot in that area and why people believe things and why people are suspicious of outsiders and whatever. And there's a lot of research that kind of says that it was a very natural survival instinct early on that you reinforce the ideas of your group as a protection against, you know, sure. other groups. And early on, you know, that's they would be more extreme like that. Like this yep. tribe would be like this and this tribe would identify like this and this tribe would identify like this because that's what you needed to do to survive. We're these guys. Mm -hmm. We're this team. And I kind of like that. I thought that was a good – I mean, it was a beautiful bit of styling and looked amazing, but I felt like it, again, served the kind of story and idea of it, that they were all kind of existing in this world together. where They, they, had, they, were, they had to depend on each other. Yeah, they relied on each other, but it was an uneasy truce but and they completely. were all – Well, like the guys that controlled the past needed the oil to fuel right. the dirt bikes. So that's how they survived. That's probably how they got bullets and how they got oil and how they got food was they said, well, we'll let you come through the pass. Right. You know, and the thing I like that um, you're talking about, like tribalism, that's sort of where we're at, at least here in America. You're seeing it when you have like, I read this great article um, about how we as Americans need to get away from that. It, it, it's part of what's fueling the like, 
and obviously these riots in Baltimore and Ferguson are very complex. I don't know if anyone in Australia is hearing much about this, but this is big news in the States. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, I haven't been in Australia heaps, but I, I know when I was in Australia, you were still getting plenty of news about that. I think big American news tends to be big news everywhere. Okay. So, Whereas like Australia only gets on the American news when Barnaby's going to kill Johnny Depp stocks. <laughs> This is literally, there's so much stuff that happens in Australia every day. The only thing that gets on is Bar- <laughs> Barnaby's killing Bobo and Frankie or whatever the names are. Flapjack and... Flapjack and, and, and Bokey. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, but one of the things it talks about is, is this, this guy in this article was saying, you know, if, if, the if everybody just sides with their tribe here in America, we're never going to get anything done. Basically, like if the police unions, with regard to these shootings of of cops shooting young, you know, black guys in the street, they're like if the police unions just go, we're backing our guys a hundred percent. Who cares about the evidence? And if the black community goes, we're blacking, we're 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 backing our we're guys, blacking we're our blacking community. Our guys, <laughs> No matter what the evidence is. It'd be great if the black community just started replacing the word black with, uh, with back. back with black. <laughs> this is our new thing we're doing now. We're blacking our own guys. We're blacking our yeah. own guys. But like... Cause you <laughs> Have was, you heard that new ACDC song, <laughs> Black and Black? What? <laughs> but like, and it was a great example of like, he was saying like, we all need to try to understand, you know, what each other's because if we and, and that's so big in America too the red state blue state the Fox News the CNN it's the you know the conservative the liberal it's just such a fight 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 no one's willing to hear the other side and what what it tells me is if society collapses guess what there's going to be these firm crazy lines drawn in the sand and everyone's going to think like all these survivalists are always like I'm going to have all these guns and canned food and it's like okay and then what after six months then what what do you do? And I mean, and we're not far away from it. You've had a few things like, you know, there's the Texas takeover thing happening in America at the moment where the, you know, Texas thinks that the, you know, American military is taking over Texas. And you had that guy, whatever his name, Clive and Bundy or whatever, who like, I mean, yeah. these things are already kind of happening. Yeah. All these militias in America, these heavily armed militias that kind of, they can't wait for governments to collapse so they can swoop in and be lunatics. And, right strap guys to the front of cars and have five virgins that you bathe in milk, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so I think, I think George Miller really, really acutely depicted where we potentially could go from, from right now, from today. And I mean, obviously it was very clear. It was like, Oh, so big government used religion. And then you've got, the oil industry and the gun industry. Right. And they all... You've, yeah, you've got the military and you've got, you know, big electricity, right. basically. And they're controlling everybody and women are going to have to... are going to be the what's going to save us because men have already fucked it up too bad. Right. You know? And then it's like, oh, the feminist agenda. Well, you're just an asshole that, 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 like, if you think about it, it's not white people have screwed it up or this or that group. It's men. Right. <laughs> it's men have fucked it up. Well, basically what, I mean, and again, here's the thing that we kind of have to acknowledge, I think, in this whole debate, and you talk about being nuanced in our conversations, we have to acknowledge that much of the success that we have been as human beings has been off the back of men. 
you know, men wanting to fight, men wanting to conquer, men wanting to do all those sort of things has got us to a point in our civilization where some of those things, you know, the hunter gatherer, you know, the, the, the idea to be able to fight and kill and dominate and hunt and all those things were very important, like, you know, things for us to have in our personalities for us to su- survive, right? But we have reached a point in our evolution where those same uh, personality traits or those same approaches mm-hmm. or those same things have started being counterproductive. Well, it's because a- we have a different system now right. that those same impulses, you know, when you look at the rampant inequality in our society, like you look look at those top country, companies, they're mostly, I mean, dominated by men at the top, sure. like, you know, right? And these are the ones that are, you know, where the CEO is getting paid 300 times what the oh, yeah, yeah. average worker is being paid. That's comes from that same system that you know led us to this point in our evolution but those same because of the way our society is constructed now those things are less necessary and in fact are getting us into trouble you know the old george bush instinct to go to war and blow up a country that said wars don't work like that anymore no we're in a new world and the truth is you went in you know america went in wrecked a country, has really wrecked themselves and yeah. created as many new threats as there were existing threats when they went in there in the first place. And that's not to say there aren't threats because clearly there are threats. Right. But clearly our approach to dealing with those threats is not the right approach. Well, yeah, if you're going to go in... I'm not saying we shouldn't have an approach. No, I'm no, not no, saying no, be no, like, you know... No, it's true. It's like I, and, I, and, I, and I have this discussion specific to the Middle East with people all the time because... I've been over there. Be going over there as a comedian doesn't make me an expert in the region, but I do feel like I've seen and talked to a lot of different people. And like I remember Colin Powell said, who was Secretary of State um, under Bush, said Colin. We'd say right, yeah. Colin Powell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you, but you're like, no, no, no. He's a leader of our country. So we want to like pronounce his name like it's a part of our ass. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be a great respect to this great man. Well, that's what's <laughs> <laughs> like his name's not spelled C O L O N, is it? Is it Colin? C O L I N. Yeah. Yeah, Colin. Why you say Colin? I say my own name wrong. Right, what but Colin. We... Like, why have you made Colin a name Colin. that isn't Colin? Yeah. Colin. Yeah. Okay. Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Let me. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, Rectum Powell um, <laughs> said said. That the, the Middle East specifically is the most complex geopolitical landscape we've ever seen in the history of mankind. Right. And, you know, Bush went in there with tanks and, right. and the military and we're going to invade. And, and it's just like that's like the whole world is changing. And I think I if mean, you look at the complexity of that region, even again, the fight against ISIS, like, again, I'm not even across all this stuff, but I know that essentially I think that ISIS. We're fighting ISIS, like, and when, when I say we're, because like, if America's fighting them, Australia is as well. That's how it works. Uh, well, you're plus one. So <laughs> we're like the rich friend that says, just yeah. come to this fancy club and restaurant, and I'll pick up the tab because I'm rich. And you go, okay. And then I split, and the, the $2,500 ticket drops on your thing. And you're like, where did he go? And you're James Franco, we're Seth Rogen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we're the fun ones that always have weed. <laughs> And we're the good-looking assholes yeah. that it's all about us. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's us. Always making decisions that everyone else is like, why is he, t- why is why? he doing that? No, I, I can. Because he can. I'm good-looking yeah. at a private jet. Because, America, because we can. <laughs> Bingo and flapjack. Because we can. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, 
what was the point of that? Uh, We're just talking about getting back to Mad Max and about how these old, you're saying these old systems help build society, which is correct. Right. Like it okay. helped build Rome. This is what I was saying about the Middle East. Sorry, this is what I was trying to say. So we're fighting ISIS, and I believe that uh, Iraq, the, go- the government of Iraq, is fighting ISIS on our side. And I believe that Iran, who we're normally pretty much fighting against, are uh, also fighting ISIS. So we're weirdly enough on Iran's side against, in the fight against ISIS, yeah. but not really anything else. And then, like, ISIS are against Syria, and we're against Syria. So we're basically on the same side as ISIS in the fight against. I mean, how are you meant to? just send in a tank and fix that that oh, doesn't yeah. well that was the thing too like there was and, a, and you know the, the Sunnis and the Shiites and the well, like it's, it's, yeah, it's a Shiite it's a Shiite ruled government so then the, the Sunnis are the ones that a, a lot of they're in a lot of cities that ISIS is overrunning, like in right. the Anbar province, which I've been to, in Mosul, uh, which is in the north, which is also a lot of uh, Kurds live up there. By the way, I think we've said enough things about the Middle East that the NSA are now listening to this podcast. So, get that, guys. So. Hi, fellas. <laughs> um, did you like Mad Max? Um, and I think uh, there was a general in the Pentagon um, – right after 9-11, who said, if we're going to legitimately go into Iraq, we're going to need 500,000 troops. Right. And Bush fired him. And, you know, I think at our peak over there, we had 160 or 170,000 or whatever. So we keep getting mixed up in these hornet's nests. Um, Part of it is, you know, we in the West, not just America, but the Western world, we're a bunch of oil addicts. And Bush went, for right or wrong, and again, I didn't vote for the guy, I don't agree with him, but I understand his logic of, I got 300 million oil addicts. They got to be fed. So I'm going to go in there and, can, and lie about weapons of mass destruction and all this other shit. Occasionally, you've got to come up with an excuse to invade Bullet Town. You know, you got <laughs> Bullet Town, we need bullets. Yeah. We got to go to Bullet Town. I mean, it's called Bullet Town, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they must have bullets in that town. Am I right? Am I right? We're getting some... I know, forget Hans Blix, who's saying that there aren't any bullets in Bullet Town. It's called Bullet Town. There must be bullets there. We're pretty sure they were involved in 9-11. <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever, go. Um, but yeah, so I think, and I think, and kind of bringing this all back to Mad Max, I had this debate with many friends of mine who were liberals. I'm, I'm pretty liberal in my politics. I'm an independent. But I, but, and they said, you know, Bush just went over there for oil. And I said, yeah. I remember at a dinner party and I went, did any of us ride our bikes or take public transportation to this dinner party? I drove, you drove, we all drove. And everyone was like, I go, we're all a little bit culpable. Oh, of course. You I know, mean, I don't think that we think about that enough as a society, uh-uh. how much blood is on all of our hands yes. every day. Now, I'm not saying that you can live in a world where you aren't harming somebody else. If you have a, you know, an iPhone or whatever, like chances are somewhat, yeah. Someone at some stage in that process is being exploited. If yeah. you've ever bought like a $12 T-shirt at like a department store yeah. – you can't make a twelve dollar t shirt where everybody, you know, is working well and having a happy life. No. It's, it's just not affordable. Even if you buy a thirty dollar t shirt, someone in there got fucked over. Right. Because chances are they just paid the same poor worker the same yeah. amount and they just took more of the profit. Yeah, now a guy's got eighteen <laughs> yeah. more goddamn dollars in his pocket. Right. But I think it kind of relates to what the themes of George Miller with Mad Max is there was no you know, there was some clear cut evil people in that movie for sure. Yeah. But everyone was sort of dependent upon everybody to a certain extent. And everyone was a little bit culpable. And everyone, there was going to take a massive upheaval to change things. Well, okay. So 
and, and everyone's motivations, this is the thing that I, I don't mind if people's motivations are evil or if people's motivations are not what everybody's motivation should be, as long as they make sense as their motivations, right? I get why this guy who is like this powerful leader of this like community who's trying to like, uh, has these five women and he's trying to, because they're living in this world where everybody has uh, kind of congenital defects or whatever yeah, gout or whatever they've got yeah. all these all but they've these all got these weird we diseases cured. and but also like weird kind of inbreeding things yeah. or or maybe because of the whatever happened you know in the world sort of thing they've got exposure to right, whatever it is you know they're all suffering so clearly he's got two sons i think right with the guy in the wheelchair the tiny guy who's an australian guy called quentin who i know who's been to many of my shows nice. quentin was like an australian celebrity when he was like a kid he has he has brittle bones so he was basically one of those people that if you like you shook his hand too hard he would break oh, wow. and he captured the nation's heart as like this little kid like in this tiny wheelchair and was like the staple of this like current right. affairs show would always catch up with what was going on with quentin and his brittle bones and now he's like, I guess, mid-40s or whatever and like, you know, in Mad Max. So I'd high-five him, but I don't want to break his arm, you know. So, But I kind of got the impression that he had the big idiot son, the big tall idiot son, you know, the big dumb guy, the one who like, you know, screamed out that I was going to have a brother, right. you know, that guy. Mm-hmm. And he had Quentin, the guy in the wheelchair. And so basically my understanding was that he was trying to breed with these women like a, a a perfect sort of heir right. because he wasn't happy with what had happened so far, basically. Right. So it was one of those things where I was like, that makes sense. If you're in charge and you want to like pass on and you've like, you know, tried breeding and you've got a, you know, two idiot sons or like, you know, defective in that world or whatever, then that motivation makes sense to me. Yeah. And it doesn't and, mean that I'm like, yes, you should be able to do that. Right. But yeah, it, it all, I'm not saying I'm not, if there's anyone else, like, I've got two idiot sons. Can I capture women and have sex with them? Will Anderson said I could on his podcast. I didn't say that. You're taking my words out of context. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, no, that, and that's again, a, a, a mark of why this is good. You understood everybody's motivation. In this post-apocalyptic world, he got access to a water well, which means he had access to food, which means it gave him power. Right. And you know what? He could feed every... And I understand the, the fear-based of like, well, I can't feed all these people. Right. So fuck them. You know, like, I'm not saying that's right or anything like that, but I understand where that comes from. And I think... Um, I, I won't get into spoilers at the end of the movie, but um, I think then some of the stuff that unfolds at the end of that film made sense in terms of like showing, well, actually, you know, it's like the thing we're struggling with now that, you know, the one percenters have all this power and they're afraid if they give it up. And it's like, I always say, if I, I wish I could sit down the most powerful people in the world, you know, all nine of them or whatever, they control everything and go, look, if everybody had a decent job. Right. And could feed their families. Two things are going to happen. There's no crime. They have no motivation to. And then they're all buying your stuff. Like you're still going to have your nice profit margins. And like, do you really need a 200 foot yacht? But also guess who spends money? Poor people. Right. Poor people spend all their money. Yes. Because you have to. Yeah. So the more that poor people have money, the more money that goes into economy and people are buying things and doing things and whatever. It's... It makes no sense to me that these people who are like, you know, the Walmart family is a really good example because they own the same amount of wealth as I think 42% of like Americans, right? And a lot of people who work at Walmart aren't on a minimum wage that means that they, they can like pay their bills or earn a living. Like that's just like even the people who work at your stores 
uh, like, and you have all this money. That's just not. I know. And it, 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 it's so fear-based. It's, and it, it comes from that old business model. Like you said, the, the men that built society, that's how you had, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, that's how you had to do it. Right. You come in, you conquer, you got to be my slaves because shit needs to get built. So now you don't need to do that. And they're so afraid of sharing the wealth. But if you do that, it would be, it would be better for you. I read a great article the other day uh, that was explaining that uh, there's no re- po- that uh, poverty is the reason for world hunger, not lack of food. Oh, of course. So basically, we're making enough food in the world to feed everyone adequately now. Like already, we wouldn't oh. even have to change the production. There is enough food being made in the world. But of course, as we know, like, I mean, well, in America in particular, like, people are eating like a third of what they order, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's why. And so basically yeah. it's inequality that means that people, people don't have enough money to buy the food, to keep the food in their areas. What happens to these developing countries is right. that people come and they end up have, like making all this food for the rest of the world that they then can't. Yeah, afford to eat themselves. Like the quinoa farmers. Yeah. You know, the quinoa farmers have just got like fucked by the fact that because basically they now they can't eat quinoa because it's so like in demand in the West that like (laughs) they have to make the quinoa and then send it over so they don't even have something like to eat anymore. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, And if you think about, I think there's some course corrections we could make that could solve many of these problems that wouldn't require... Um, a global collapse or upheaval. But if we don't, we're going to have a global collapse collapse and upheaval. And look, I do think that is a debate that society is having more and more at the moment. Like, it's on the agenda now, at least, where people are like, hang on, I think we're, you know, there's some issues here that, like, I mean, I look at the American election, the fact that each of those candidates is going to have to raise, like, a billion dollars, which means there are a billion dollars in the pocket of, you know, whoever, special interests. Sure. You know, um, You've got to look at that system and go, hang on, if I came out from here as an outsider and looked at a system where like, you know, only like two families because essentially run for fucking president because they're the only ones who can raise enough money to like, you know, I mean, it's, it's not how you would, it's not how America, how it sees itself, how it mythologizes itself in movies and television and, you know, history and all those sort of things. This system that you have now is not what it was meant to be. Ever. And it's not what you say out loud that you believe in or that you have. No, and it's, 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 it's like I had a great conversation with a buddy of mine I went to college with who's a, who's a cop. Um, and growing up, he was raised very Republican and conservative. And, and we were just having – I haven't talked to him in a while. And he just said, you know, Graham, I got to be honest with you. I've actually started to go a little more to the left. I've just been exposed to more things. He goes, like, I live, I live in Arizona. And so the, the illegal uh, immigrant is a big issue in Arizona because it borders with Mexico. Right. And he's like, we got to round them up and send them all back. He goes, that's preposterous. I go, these people are risking everything to come to this country to have the worst jobs that we can offer. But they're better than their life back in Central or South America. And, so what and we can you? do that. Yeah. I, I read a statistic that 99% of America is in... The, so you talk about, you know, the 1%, you know, but 99% of Americans are in the top 14% of wage earners in the world. In the world. So even like, the, you know, the poorest American, yeah. still by world standards, is, you know, not the poorest poorest, but, well, you know, like the majority. Like, here's, you know, here's a great example. So poverty in America is if you make something like twelve or fourteen thousand dollars a year or less. 
Right. You're, you're, that's, that's how we measure poverty in America. In India, poverty is you don't have shelter, food, or access to drinkable water. Right. 300 million people in India live at that level. That is the population of the United States of America. Uh-huh. And they're people. Yeah. They're people like you or I who... Now, I understand that like, there is a, like, a limited amount of compassion that everybody can have, but I think that we just have to have a greater understanding. Uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Warren? Is that the name of the, the American politician, Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. like a Democrat. And uh, she made a great speech about that no one gets there by themselves. You know, no matter how successful your company is, that, you know, the, the building, you know, the trucks, you know, that pr- produce the stuff still go on the same roads that everybody paid for with their taxpayer dollars. The people who are buying your product are people who were, you know, the, the engineers that you have working there were educated in a system that was partly paid for by the tax. Like nobody right. gets there by themselves. And I think that just as a general society, if we just tried, why don't we just try setting it up so everybody has enough? And see what that world's like. Right. Let's just see if that works better than Would what we're doing ISIS now. Would the guys need to do that? Would they, you know, like, I, when I remember being in Afghanistan and talking to uh, several soldiers and stuff who worked in interrogation and worked with the locals, and they said, you know, here's how an IED, which is the improvised explosive device, here's how it works. I pay one guy, the Taliban or Al Qaeda, whatever you, they'll pay one guy a hundred bucks to put these two things together. Pay another guy a hundred bucks to put the thing there. Another guy a hundred bucks to make the phone call at this moment, right? A hundred dollars is almost a monthly, is a month of wages in Afghanistan. So you're a poor farmer and you're offered a hundred bucks to do this thing. You're not a fundamentalist. You're not a radical, but I got to feed my goddamn family. Here's why religion works. Religion works because it works on this idea. There is somewhere better than this. Sure. There is somewhere better than the life that you have right now and you will be rewarded in this place. The people who are most likely to believe that message are people whose lives aren't particularly good here. It's why you see such high rates of religion in like developing countries sure. because if you've got this terrible life, you've got to believe that you know there's a better you know yeah, life you awaiting to. you, right? If we give everyone a better standard of living, then you start to deal with that already. That idea that, yep. like, you know, you know, that th- there is a better. Pl- why just enjoy this place? Right. Let's let's give everyone a go at enjoying this place and seeing what that looks like. We can do it. We have enough money in the world, and we have enough food in the world that everybody could earn a decent wage and everybody could like eat. No, what, let's what, try that. What would the crime rate look like? What would what would extremism and terrorism look like? Would it? I mean, how much would it diminish if everyone was like taken care of? So much of the recruiting in the Middle East by ISIS and Al Qaeda and the Taliban is poor, uneducated, no hope. That's the street gangs in America. It's the same model. So like, because it's like you have nothing to live for. Well, you might as well fucking join and deal crack or join ISIS, whatever the thing is, because you have no hope. Also, the education thing is a really important thing to consider because if you look at, and this is something that I don't think we consider enough because it's always like, well, why do they hate us? Well, they hate our freedom. No, like if I was on their side and I was trying to convince a bunch of people that America hated us, there's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of you know, invasions yeah. and bombings and all sorts of drones, yeah. you know, all these sort of things mm-hmm. that you could, if you didn't want to present a balanced point of view to a bunch of people who aren't watching The Daily Show every right. day, 
you know, like you could certainly show a lot of evidence to make your case that, you know, you had to fight against America, the great evil. There's plenty of evidence. We don't acknowledge that enough that... But I think that this is what that poverty thing would be able to do. A, you could educate more people so that when somebody comes to them with that idea, they could be a bit more like, well, it's clearly more complex than that. There's like, you know, issues here on either side and maybe I'm being manipulated in what I'm right. thinking, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's If you provided for everybody and provided decent education for everybody, it would be, it would be an amazing society. I think it would be an amazing society. I kind of feel like that's our last hope. Like, I kind of feel like what we've done, like, you know, with our world at the moment, and if you look at climate change, and if you are a believer of, you know, the people who actually know what they're talking about, that it's happening, and it may be happening at a rate that uh, we can't address just by stopping what we're doing now. If you believe that to be true, here's my only hope for the world, right? Is that we have always, we've innovated ourselves to where we are now. And over the course of human evolution, we have created things that in our everyday life that I just can't even comprehend or understand that we have been able to come up with. The fact that we can do this thing, that you and I in my living room can talk into this thing and then I'll just plug it into my computer and it can be heard all around the world. All around the world. Like we should have a fucking day off every fucking year just for whoever invented that. Right. Like that's amazing. Like literally, I mean, getting into earbuds, you know, we flew to the Australian Outback to interview this guy, Russell, right? Who listens to this show and listens to comedy film nerds. And we're in the middle of the Outback because of this thing. And the thing that we're, we're showing in earbuds is Australian miner on paper, what would he possibly have in common with a, I mean, these are the people we've interviewed. On paper, a drill sergeant in the United States Army, uh-huh. a gymnastics coach in Indiana, an Australian miner in the outback, uh-huh. a Japanese housewife. Yep. You know. It's like the world's worst Avengers. You, <laughs> you guys aren't solving any crimes at all. Like, on paper, they, those, what could they possibly have in have common? Have in common. And this technology is amazing. Both of our, like, you can have a video chat with a friend in Australia right now. You can see their face from around the fucking globe on your phone, like out of Star Trek. That is amazing. In the era we live in. So this is what gives me right. some hope. confidence mm-hmm. and hope, which is this, that we may not be able to repair the damage we've done, mm-hmm. but maybe, well, by just stopping enough, you know, I don't just don't think we've got the right, you know, motivation or targets. People just aren't stopping quickly enough for us to, you know, redress the damage that way. So our only hope is innovation. Our only hope is to put money into education and to technology and to research into letting the most brilliant minds in our world work on our solution for our biggest problems. I don't really understand why we don't even have, like through the UN or whatever, like a global, you know, ideas initiative, which is just like for the, you know, like that is independent, that everyone, you know, funds and finance. And you could get fucking Bill Gates and you yeah. know, everybody else to help finance it as well. But it's just essentially we get the smartest, like, you know, scientists and researchers in the world and we get them to be constantly working on the world's biggest problems, like, you know, as an independent, you know, resource. Because, of course, we can fix these things, but we need to... Well, I'll tell you a great example. You know, I just, I just... You know, we're living in California. We're, we're coming up on four years of drought, uh-huh. which I'm sure many of your listeners in Australia are very familiar with drought. Um, and in the northern part of the U.S., 
we've been getting these crazy snowstorms in the winter that then in the spring bring crazy floods. Right. How about a pipeline? Right. So instead of Massachusetts, instead of Boston being flooded, how about we just send that water down south where we need it? Right. Like, instead of this oil pipeline, why don't we do that? I talked to a guy on a plane who works for wind farming. This guy lives in Texas. And he was like, there's enough wind in North and South Dakota, which are very flat plains, to, to if we captured it, it could provide 60% of America's electricity. He goes, it's just two issues, capturing it and then the distribution of it. So that, for the richest, most powerful country in the history of the world, if we can come up with a trillion goddamn dollars to invade Iraq, I think we could come up with a handful, of, we could come up with $50 billion to fucking set those things up. It, well, even if, and I absolutely agree, firstly. And secondly, to get back to like, you know, your Walmarts or whoever's, like, you know, these people who are making more money than they will ever need. Right. Why don't they start doing things like that? Like, if you, if Mr. and Mrs. Walmart, right, the Marts, <laughs> Will John and, and Carol, Will, Will and Walmart, <laughs> <laughs> Will and you know, the Mart twins. Yeah, they're great. And they're great. Um, so, uh, if they came out and said, hey, you know, America has been so great to us. Like, and we have managed to build this great empire. What we have decided to do is invest in a major, you know, infrastructure project or, you know, blah, blah, blah for the future of America. I bet you they would sell more things at Walmart that fucking next year me? than they would ever, like, say, do hey, you know what I mean? Like, 10% of everything you buy at Walmart is going to go towards this. Right. And this direct thing. Um, I always think, like, you know, having been in show business a long time, having had little glimpses or tastes of fame, I don't know that I want to be, um, like there's a part of me that's like, I don't know that I would ever want, a little more fame just for the financial security of it would be nice, but crazy fame, people TMZing, I don't, I don't want that crap. But here's what I would do if I had that much fame and money. Like I'm just like, why, doesn't, why don't all these rich people just go, like I, here's what I would do. I would just go into some neighborhood in LA an inner city school that's poorly funded, a shitty inner city school, and I just come in and go, look, what do you need? I'm putting in a computer lab, um, new library, I'm putting solar panels on the roof, rainwater catchers, and I'm gonna hire full-time tutors, and we're gonna make this, the, the library and the sports facilities are gonna be top-notch and everything, and just, I'm not gonna raise money and try to petition and put this on, no, 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 I'm Graham Elwood, I'm coming in, here's fucking $20 million, boom, do it. Why don't people, because... I don't need, I live at the beach, man, in a one bedroom. My life is, what do I need? Like literally, what more do I need? It's an interesting thing that you're saying though. And I, because I, I get asked all the time about, because I, cause I'm here, people think that it needs to be about something more than what it is about. Like, so back home, particularly when I'm doing press for my tour or whatever, the question always comes up, you know, yeah, what are you looking to achieve in America? What are you looking sure. to do? Do you want to be like the, you know, this or that or whatever? And I, I find it hard to explain to them the idea that I'm kind of happy how my life is now. It's great. Like, you know what I mean? Like for me, mm -hmm. like whatever 
aspects of you know fame and mostly it's financial security yeah. like you're absolutely right i have in place at the moment it gives me the capacity to pursue the work i think and this is the other thing that fame can do mm-hmm. it gives you the capacity to pursue the sort of work that you want to do and have an audience for that work so i have that and then anything like that is more than this like I know that you have to keep moving forward so sure. that you can have this and I would love if the podcast grew a bit or you know right. more people came and saw my stand-up shows or whatever of but course. literally that's my ambitions it'd be great if more people listened to the podcast or if more people came to the stand-up shows but other than that like do you know the amount of times I just like last night at three o'clock in the morning because I've come home from drinking with my friends like I went down to the like you know this the petrol station to buy you know cigarettes in my pajamas because I can. Like, I do really well and, like, you know, but I can also still go to the shop in my pajamas. And that's – I don't – I can't imagine there'd be anything that I'm – that is better and bigger than this that will be worth giving that up for. Somebody asked me about six, seven months ago, Graham, what's your dream job? And I said, I'm doing it. Yeah. I said, all I want is just – like Chris Mancini and I always talk about, we just want to add zeros. Right. More downloads. All I would like is everything I'm doing now, just a little more money. Because right now, financially, it's a little too up and down for me. It's- that's a really good thing, though. That, I, that's, it, that's a really good way of summing it up, which is basically all I want. It's like I'm already doing my dream, dream job. This is it. I just want a bigger audience for this thing that I'm doing right now. Yeah. But it's not like I want to do all these extra things. I don't – because look, look at what I'm doing right now. I'm in post-production on a documentary about podcasting. That we raised the money on Kickstarter. I didn't have to have any fucking pitch meetings or any of that bullshit. I'm completely empowered. I'm going to premiere this movie at the podcast festival that I run with three friends of mine. And again, no pitch meetings, no network executives. Just three days of laughing with my friends. That's all pod... It's a lot of work. And... Now this, but year- also, yeah, I bet you never would have imagined that, like in you know, that on your CV, you know, as a television host and a stand-up mm-hmm. comedian and all these things that you've been, that it would necessarily in the in the same year, you know, be documentary filmmaker and uh, arts festival, you know, <laughs> know, producer or coordinator or whatever, you know, like you're a director of an arts festival. It's crazy because that's what it is now. It is like it's- the first couple of years, it's like yeah, well, they're doing this crazy project, but now you're like, oh yeah, this is like an established branded festival, and you guys are the directors of it. <laughs> I know. Like, I never thought that would be my job, but it's it's amazing. And comedy film nerds, you know. Every week I get to talk movies right. with my buddy Chris and whatever cool, interesting person we have in the garage. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's so, this is, like, I, ha- I say things like, oh, I have to see a movie this weekend. Yeah. I got to go see Tomorrowland yeah. before Tuesday. That's my job. Right. You know, and then I got to go watch footage of the film that I'm directing, that producing with my friend, that I interviewed people like you, a bunch of my friends saying a bunch of really awesome things, traveling around the world and changing my life. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, sometimes we just go take a moment. Like that was, I, I was, because I've been writing at the moment and so I've been researching for some, you know, different things. So, you know, it can be a lot of grunt work, like a lot yes. of time at your yeah. desk and like, uh, but essentially I got to the end of the week and I was feeling a bit like, oh, I've worked really hard. But then I just looked at my week and I was like, yeah, it was all here. Like, you know, I didn't leave the apartment. Uh, I could do whatever I eat whenever I want, like, you know, wear whatever I want, like check the internet or like go for a walk or whatever, whenever I want. Like 
And I was just researching shit I'm interested in. That was my way. Just Dude, like when I get, I, you know, several times in this last month of, of you know, we're getting into the, 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 the final stages of, of earbuds. So I'm, I'm watching a lot of footage. I'm giving notes and then I'm sending it to the editor. Chris and I are talking. So I'm having these days where I'm at home four, five, six, seven hours. I'm, I haven't been on the road as much. And then, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm burning out from watching all this footage. I, I just need to go surfing to clear my head. Right. Like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. Like, okay. So I'm not getting as many. Would I like more headline gigs? Would I like to sell more tickets on the road? Of course. Would I like to be considered for all these TV shows that my friends are doing? Of course. But you know what? I'm creating something with people I like that I trust. Like, I'm just having a blast. Like the ad sales guy for comedy film nerds and the Podfest is my friend JB that I've known since I was 15. Yeah. See, I mean that capacity <laughs> to be able to work with your friends, I think is also a, a wonderful thing. Uh, all right. We should finish this up. Uh, speaking of earbuds. So basically we're looking around Podfest. There's like a bit of a launch. And then, uh, then after that, hopefully well, here's what I want to do. And you and I've talked about it, but it bears repeating on the show. Um, is obviously we did some interviews in Sydney last year. So we want to take it to Australia. I'd love to screen it in Sydney and Melbourne, if possible, and anywhere else. So we want to have screenings and then have Q&As if you're around or whoever's there, whoever's in the movie, uh, CJ Johnson, who writes for us and is a big movie reviewer in Australia. So we want to take it on the road. Bingo, tattoo, flapjack, Bingo, tattoo, flapjack. If we can get them, if they're available. If if Barnaby hasn't put them on So, so, um, yeah. Spe- co- special guest panel. Earbuds, the. <laughs> they, they've come to the wrong panel. They, they, they thought it was Air Bud. Yeah, they g- love that movie. It's like a big movie in the dog community. I know it wasn't like a hit for humans, but dogs, I mean, oh, for them, they're God. like. This is, this is their guy. Finally. This is it. Finally, a Duncan dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks. Get your earbuds merchandise signed by Tattoo, Bingo, and Flapjack. Um, so we're setting up screenings. Yeah, so we want to show it at PodFest, then we're going to take it to festivals. But the goal has always been to take it out. We want to screen it in Australia. We want to screen it in Japan. I'm setting up a tour of in Hong Kong and China um, doing, like, screenings. If Chris can come with me, we'll do... Like, we want to do comedy film nerds in Australia. We've never done it live there. We need to do it there. Yeah, it'd be great. And I imagine there's, like... Well, I know. I don't imagine, but I know there's heaps of people listening to this podcast who listen to comedy film nerds, so I'm sure there'd be a huge Aussie audience for it. Like, you look at the success of, like, you know, that Dave's had with the dollop and stuff down there. I mean, there's a... It's so great. There's an audience there who love podcasts and um yeah it's really good okay what else mate where can people find you like all, all my, those sort of things all my tour dates and everything mm. you go to grandmelwood.com if you're in the states um or uh, obviously we'll be releasing all these dates and everything like that i'm on twitter at grandmelwood instagram at grandmelwood and of course uh comedy film nerds podcast we're at comedy film nerds on all the uh, and then Los Angeles Podcast Festival, uh, FOFOP will be there again. Yes, that's true. September 18th through the 20th. Yep. And get tickets. And Charlie's coming over as well. So, oh, Char- we- so Charlie and myself, and uh, I think actually Charlie's coming over for a week this time, and I will just be flying in for the you day. You guys are out of your mind. But anyway. I so appreciate that you guys fucking fly across the globe to do a podcast for a day or two. And then I like, will tell you this, though. Last year, when I was here for the whole weekend and didn't have to do that, I had much more fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. You guys had a blast. So 
that's if you guys, if anyone who wants to come to the festival, uh, discount hotel rooms, tickets, and everything are available at lapodfest.com. And it is really, uh, I mean, the reason that we fly over from Australia is it's one of the best things. And I've played a lot of the best, you know, arts and comedy festivals around the world. There is a special vibe to Podfest that is unlike anything else going yeah. around. So uh, we're very pleased to be part of it again this year. Hey, guys, if you want to see a live version of the show and you're in the United Kingdom, I am at the Soho Theatre for the first two weeks of June doing my free will show um that's about half sold out at the moment so if you want to come and see that you might want to uh, buy a ticket sooner rather than later on the night of june the 6th we will be doing a um live faux fop first time we've ever done it live in the uk oh. uh and james fosdyke's just done a great new poster and t-shirt for it so they will be available of course i will show you after the podcast because uh, it's a cool uh poster he's done for us and um uh, so come and see me do that then i'm doing free will july 11th at nerd melt here in LA the entire show so it's that's a Saturday night uh, July the 11th and then uh, uh, July the 26th I think at the Montreal Just for Last Festival I'm there all week doing shows but I am doing Free Will my hour on the night of the 26th and I think tickets are available for that at the moment then Free Will in Sydney in August and then in uh, Perth in October and nice. tickets for those have just gone on sale as well I forgot to mention this real quick I am headlining in Minneapolis uh, June 19th and 20th at the Comedy Corner Underground so go to grandmelwood.com get tickets for that awesome thanks so much for being on the podcast Dude. I appreciate you came uh, after the funeral hi man I'm, but you know it was actually good it was good to come and talk it out there we go see you nice I love it alright we'll talk to you again soon cheers cheers